special occasions in the year and in our lives and even in the church often come with, um, with some complications. Um, I think if we read um, our worship life together as being something completely separate from our real lives, that somehow we're, we're missing the point. Thanksgiving Sunday. Uh, it's actually not really on the Christian year calendar, but it is a, a day, a uh, weekend, where um, we uh, are offered an opportunity to think about gratitude, which is something that is particularly central to what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, to be um, a person of God, to be a human being. Um, I've been wishing people Thanksgiving, uh, uh, happy Thanksgiving. I, I even wished Siri happy Thanksgiving a couple of nights ago. Um, but uh, I'm going to tell you this, that, that unlike most of you, if, if I say Thanksgiving, happy Thanksgiving to you, you'll say the same back to me. But Siri wouldn't allow me to wish her happy Thanksgiving. Instead, she interrupted my greeting with something like, I'm sorry, but I think that Thanksgiving is on Monday, October the 9th. Um, that was just a little reminder to me about the scope of Thanksgiving uh, in our culture, that even Siri uh, knows about this special opportunity. And so our life of worship, our life with God, is never far away from what is going on in the culture and in the world. Today there might be a maybe more than usual kind of tension in the air as we come to a service and to a day where we're asked to focus on thanksgiving. Because what dominates our thinking, what dominates the narrative of our lives in the world are so many stories of tragedy and violence and bigger questions and issues that are difficult for us to deal with. The things that are interrupting our lives and dominating our imaginations and disturbing our hearts, things like the destructiveness of hurricanes, ongoing nuclear threats, mass murder, and the stories continue. So much suffering in the world. So many broken hearts and ruined lives. I know that when the worry of the first hurricanes started to come, I was texting my Cuban friends uh, daily and multiple times in a day to make sure that, that they and their parents and their little girls and their niece and nephew uh, were safe as that hurricane ripped through the north uh, shore of Cuba. And it's with this tension, this very real tension, that we come to our text today, which we are two-thirds of the way through, Psalm 136. This Psalm 136, with the repeatedness of his love endures forever, expresses Israel at worship, and it expresses how Israel at worship narrates its history and describes its history at every level by the theme of being a grateful people who recognize that their lives are rooted in the identity of a God who is good, 
and generous from the very beginning of creation right up until the present day. The way that Psalm 136 tells the story of gratitude as worship is, um, is, is, is fascinating because it's comprehensive. It reaches back to the ancient blessing of creation in the first part of the psalm. It carries through in more recent history with the specific history of Israel, most notably the rescue of God's people from Israel with that outstretched arm. And then it continues and brings the reality of gratitude right into today and to the everyday provision of daily bread. There is a connection between the last part of the psalm and the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray, asking for daily bread, because we believe that that's who God is. But in Psalm 136, this beautiful, powerful, and comprehensive description of a people who self-identify as a people of gratitude, shaped and formed in the image of a generous God, there's somewhere else to go. The conflict between gratitude and suffering, or the tension between trouble and responding to a generous God, actually not solved directly in the psalm as we get it. Just think about Israel's history for a second. Let's just just read between the lines for a second on this powerful expression of gratitude. All you have to do is to think about some of the high points, or should I say the low points, of Israel's history and our history, and you will remember the rebellion in the Garden of Eden. You'll remember the breakdown of brotherly love between Cain and Abel. You'll remember the painful experience of slavery of God's people in Exodus. You'll remember the lostness that they experienced, the separation that they experienced, at least spiritually and emotionally, from God, who was ever-present, and yet much of the time they couldn't recognize his presence or notice his goodness, and instead looked for that goodness in other places. You remember the famine of Ruth and Naomi, the excruciating, crushing, undeserved suffering of God's servant Job, the shocking and murderous, adulterous sin of King David, a man after God's own heart, the evil of kings and priests alike, and even up until more recent betrayal and denial and abandonment of Jesus' disciples. It's not a pretty picture, this history. And yet the psalm attempts to continue to shape our identity as people who were called and created for gratefulness, even though it knows that we know between the lines there's another debate, there's another set of questions, there are deeper concerns. It's a problematic history of trouble and disaster and suffering at seemingly every turn. If you're looking for a polished, perfect view of human life, the scriptures are not where you go, except for when they come to their conclusion with the picture of Jesus. 
who becomes a perfect picture of generosity, not because his life was polished and perfect, but because his life ended on a cruel Roman cross. And there's the tension. The summer started for many of us with the shocking, devastating flooding in Houston and the subsequent destruction of so many people's homes and neighborhoods and lives. Who of us can forget those images on CNN and MSNBC and the CBC and all of the networks, day after day after day, several weeks in a row? And just when I'm worrying about a little leaking in my window well, I'm looking at the television screen and reminded that hundreds of thousands of people's homes are completely wiped out and destroyed, never mind those other dozens of people who lost their lives in those floods. The massacre in Las Vegas, it's almost too early to talk about that in a, this, a context like this, even as we pray and ask questions and struggle with the goodness of God in our time. Maybe there is no explanation at all for this kind of unveiled, raw kind of evil. And so how do we find our way to gratitude on a Thanksgiving Sunday when all of these issues are colliding together just like they so often do in the Psalms? Again, what you get in the Psalms is not so much a polished characterization of God's people at worship, what you get in the Psalms is a very rigorous, earthy, gritty picture of honesty and integrity and struggle with God in worship. How do we come to see our identities as being people who are loved and cared for by God in the midst of all of these tragedies and unsolved questions? Israel works it out somehow. And this is often expressed first and foremost in the Psalms. That's the place that you go in prayer and in worship, seeking God's purposes when things go deathly wrong in the world, and even deathly wrong in your own life, in the brokenness of your own heart. And somehow, shockingly, these psalms are able to shape God's people's identity in a way of recognizing the way of generosity and the way of giving thanks, even in the midst of so much trouble and so much sickness, so much disaster, so much loss, and so much horror. Psalm 46 classically expresses, God is our refuge and our strength, an ever-present help in trouble. Therefore, we will not fear, though the earth give way and the mountains fall into the heart of the sea. That's, you know, a translation for that little phrase, though the earth give way, is we will not fear even though our lives are falling apart. Even though our world looks like it is going to hell in a handcart. Even though disasters are overwhelming our senses to be able to even take in the stories. I mean, this hurricane season, you have to, um, have to admit, is ridiculous. 
That's not just one, not just two. It's not just a week. It's not just a month. This whole season of dreadful, devastating storms issuing in so much tragedy and loss. And near the end of Psalm 146, the psalmist asks us to be still and to recognize, to reflect, and to recognize the presence and the reality of God. And not only to recognize the reality of God, but to recognize that God is with us in the midst of the storms and the trouble. This is what a theologian named Mindy McCant says about this issue of gratefulness or grace and its collision with the story of tragedy. She says that redemption is the collision of two narratives. These two stories, the story of suffering and the story of salvation, appear to wrestle for the primacy within the lives of individuals and communities. There's a struggle going on, she says. Redemption is the new narrative that we are invited into receive even in the midst of the narrative of nightmarish suffering. In the reception of our story of redemption, we find ourselves, and even our stories of profound suffering, being redeemed. That's the tension that we feel on a day like this when we're called to worship, when we're offered songs of praise, even in the midst of so much loss and so much tragedy. She continues, the difference between the story of suffering and the story of redemption is not a question of which story you prefer. It is instead a question of which story is ultimately true. That's the choice. Not the choice of what you want, but the choice to choose what is true. Narrating life truthfully, she writes, requires that it is the story of redemption, not the story of suffering, that defines God's people. And one of the things that we want to do in a place of worship is to say that clearly and strongly, that it is the story of God's goodness that defines us, not the story of our sufferings, even though none of us are going to avoid that story somewhere in some place in our lives. It's because of this that the Christian spiritual writer David Stendhal Reist can say that, that the courage of gratitude, the true courage of gratitude, is to be able to give thanks before the gift is open. The courage to give thanks even before you know what's going on is our declaration that we live our lives by God's grace and God's goodness, and that we are not defined by our sufferings as powerful and prevalent and prominent as they are in our lives. I've been amazed watching the television, listening to the news, listening to podcasts and the stories of these recent disasters. I've been amazed how much the news media, in the midst of all of this horror, is able to capture so many stories of people expressing their gratitude. People standing knee-deep in water in Houston and expressing gratefulness for their neighbors who came by 
in the night with a boat and a flashlight and called out their names and took them to safety, of first responders, of complete strangers giving the shirts on the boats and the money off their backs in order to help one another. It's, it's an amazing, beautiful gift. And one of the ones that kind of seeps through the otherwise difficult and dark narratives that dominate our media so much is these expressions of gratitude. I'm going to say to you on this Thanksgiving that I have a little bit of personal stake in the sermon today and in the experience of Thanksgiving and the struggle. Several weeks ago, I woke up to more texts than you can imagine on my phone telling me that close lifetime friends of ours, home, burnt completely to the ground and that they barely escaped alive. If it hadn't been for a passing stranger and visiting in their neighborhood who alerted a neighbor, they would have been trapped in the basement of their home and probably burnt alive. And the very next morning, as early as I could, I drove up to their home and I stood in front of it as it was smoldering and a flattened heap of ashes and I was completely shaken to the core. Not only to think about them, but to think about us. To think about our story and the things that are important to us, the memories, the pictures, the things that we make with our hands, the gifts that we've received, the books that we love, the places where we like to sit and drink coffee and to pray with one another and to think that that is completely a pile of ashes. And yet I'm amazed every time I touch base with my friend John to ask how they're doing as they're making their way through the myriad of people, insurance people and fire investigators and lawyers and all of the rest of the process that helps people's lives recover in the midst of disaster. It's amazing to me that every single text, John finds a way to point to gratitude. It started in the early times by saying that he and Connie are realizing that certain things are not as important to them as they once thought. That it's their family. It's their friends. It's the community of people. It's their faith in Jesus that has taken center stage in the midst right when they have lost everything that you can imagine. Three weeks ago, another lifelong friend of ours named Martha, a woman who is as beautiful on the inside as she was on the outside, lost her battle to pancreatic cancer. The wife of 30 years to one of my dearest and longest standing friends, the mother of two 23-year-old young adult twins, a male and a female, Brooker and Katie, we were just with her 12 days before she passed. She was completely herself. It was very, very difficult for us to realize. Even, even Karen's work with cancer, it was so difficult for us to realize that she would be gone. The night before the funeral, her husband and my close friend texted me and said that they were on the verge of completely breaking with grief. 
that his son was actually vomiting. The grief was so heavy in their home. And the next day we showed up in Peterborough, Ontario, in this huge, large Pentecostal church for the funeral. And I had the honor of being a pallbearer. Most of the guys who were in their wedding were the pallbearers for her service. And I swear to you, I walk in that room with five or six or 700 people, and it was going to crack. The emotion and the sadness and the grief in that room, you could, you could taste it and touch it. And when Martha's parents, you know that it's not right that children die before their parents. You know that this is an unexplainable tragedy of human life. It is just not right. And when they came and sat behind us and we could feel their grief, and Karen nudged me and she showed me the order of service. And right at the beginning of the order of service, the first person speaking, the first person saying the first words was the bereaved husband, my close friend Bob. And I gotta tell you, I can tell you amongst Presbyterian crowd that I'm thinking to myself, what are these Pentecostals thinking, letting my friend, who is completely emotionally cracking, going to stand up and say the first words at a funeral for his wife? I restrained myself. I didn't go to the pastors and say, what in the world are you thinking? And so Bob walked in with Caitlin and Brooker, and they went to their seats, and he walked up on the stage. And I'm going to tell you, I have never seen... I, I've been involved in a lot of really sad pastoral situations, many of them here in the last seven years at Knox Church that you've shared with me, and we've shared together with all of us. And he stood up and gave the most beautiful, gospel, Christ-centered word that I've ever heard at a funeral. C.S. Lewis, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, Jesus and then what he did is the most extraordinary thing. He just went around the room to his children, to us pallbearers, to his pastors, to his in-laws, to the whole community, to the people who were doing the parking and putting it together with not a word or a sign or a glimmer of falseness or denial or refusing the sadness. He thanked each and every one of us. And through those words, the room was completely restored. His expression of gratitude for all of us and for the 30 years of love and partnership that he had with Martha. And Martha was a kind of a girl, she was not a why me kind of a girl. She was a why not me kind of a person. That was her approach to everything in life, including her cancer. And the power of his words and the power of the gospel, and especially that expression of gratitude, restored that room. It's like he was lifting us up together and putting us on the table so that we could really grieve without cracking, so that we could really listen to the good news of Jesus and his resurrection, so that we really could be present to one another in the way that a mourning community needs to be present. Somehow, through the darkness and the sadness and the grief, gratitude had the central word. 
Because God, Bob is a gospel guy. He's a guy from very early on in his life has always known, come hell or high water, that the goodness of God is what he fuels his life on. And boy, was he true to himself. And was he ever true to his God? And I'll tell you, for me, and for my wife, and for that community, he needed to be. Because we didn't have it in us. But his expression of true gratitude under fire and in deep trouble was the most amazing gospel expression I've received in a very, very long time. Jesus, of course, is the center of our ability to be grateful people in the midst of trouble. Jesus is our greatest gift. He is the embodiment of gratitude under fire. The writer of Hebrews says that even though Jesus was God's son, he learned obedience, and I would add gratitude, through what he suffered. That's the center of who God is. Hebrews, the writer, continues later on in chapter 12 saying, fixing our eyes on Jesus, the pioneer and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was awaiting him endured the cross, disregarding or ignoring its shame, and who is now seated in a place of honor at the right hand of God the Father. Redemption is the narrative that we are invited to enter into in the midst of nightmarish suffering. Redemption is the story of Jesus as the ultimate expression of God's love coming right in to the deepest and darkest and most troubling. Maybe you're here this morning and you're taking the Alpha. But this is a great way to explain why we're doing Alpha. Because in the midst of the trouble, what we found is that we want to engage people in a conversation about Jesus because what we found, what we've concluded, and what we're continuing to experience is the only way to make your way in the trouble and the suffering of life is by hitching your hand or your wagon or your heart or your life to the Son of God who loved us and gave himself for us and didn't avoid or didn't deny the most troubling, the most perplexing, the most confusing, the saddest, and the deepest suffering of human life. Instead, he came into the middle of it. And so if you want to explore, for all of us, disciples and seekers, whoever you are this morning, if you want to explore that possibility, that reality, that human beings can become people of gratitude when it doesn't look or doesn't feel like there's anything to be grateful for in the day or in the week or in the season. But one of the things that we can be grateful for is that God has given us resources for working through this complex tension, this complex struggle between gratitude and suffering. I'm going to share a little story from Martin Marty, who is a well-known 
American church historian, maybe the greatest in the 20th century. He describes the story of losing his own wife to cancer after 30 years. And he writes that during the months of her final hospitalization, they took time together to read the Psalms. One at a time, at each midnight medication when he was with her. He read the even-numbered Psalms, and she read the odd-numbered Psalms. They're Lutherans, so I don't know why they chose to do that, but that's what they, that's what they came up with. But after a particularly difficult day, emotionally, for Martin Marty, he says that there's, he came to a psalm, and he decided to skip it. And his wife said to him, why did you skip over Psalm 88? What happened to Psalm 88? And he said, I didn't think that you could take it tonight. I didn't think that I could read it. And she said to him, please read it for me. Especially these words. I cry out in the night for you, for my soul is full of trouble. For you have put me in the depths of the pit and in the regions of dark and deep. And she said to Martin Marty, thank you. I need that kind of word the most. Later, Martin Marty recalled that after that conversation, they continued to speak together and to share together slowly and quietly and intimately. And then he writes, but we agreed that often the starkest scriptures were the most credible signs of God's presence, even when they come in the worst time. When life gets down to the basics, of course, one wants consoling, comforting words, he writes. The comforting sayings, the voices of hope preserved on printed pages. But then he concludes, but those words only make sense against the background of the dark words. You know that we're people, like Israel, who are shaped to be grateful when you can't find a square inch of gratefulness anywhere in the room or anywhere in your life or anywhere in the world. That's who we are. That's why God sent his one and only son to live our lives and to give his life in order to shape a people capable of praise where there is no praise to be expressed. Thanksgiving Sunday can never simply be a flowery, beautiful day with talk of harvest and richness and the good middle-class British Canadian life. Because when you bore down into gratefulness a little bit more deeply, the trouble and the tension of what it means to truly be a person of gratitude comes to the surface. But the goodness keeps on going. Israel, the Psalms, Jesus, the expression of your friends, the litany and the history of the saints. The Apostle Paul writes this about us and who we're called to be. When he says, be grateful in every situation because this is God's purpose for you in Jesus Christ. 
Can you believe that? Every situation. Be grateful in every situation, not just a couple of them, not just one or two, not just the good ones. Be grateful in every situation because this is what God is doing through you in Jesus Christ. You know there's people in this room who have experienced that and practiced that, and every one of you, myself and all of us, this is what God is doing. Because this is what God is doing in our lives, we actually can find a way to be truly grateful. In the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. I'm just going to give you a moment of silent reflection, and then Greg Summers is going to come forward.